0: Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I want to tell you something that you already know. There is a great deal of confusion about who Jesus is, his character and his nature. If you look at uh, people who are outside of the faith, if you just look at secular people today in America, you, you see that they have many different views of Jesus. Some believe that he was a teacher. Uh, who just brought maybe a new voice to what it meant to be a moral person and that uh, the heritage that we get from Jesus is just his, his teaching, his viewpoint in life. Some secular people would suggest that Jesus was a philosopher. And uh, he, he taught us how to think and, and, and a new worldview, if you will. Some people, uh, secular people, believe that uh, Jesus was a political leader, a change agent, if you will. There's a lot of confusion amongst secular people about who Jesus is. But even if you look at religious people, uh, people who do believe that there is something that is supernatural, those people also disagree about who Jesus is. Uh, If you look at the Muslims, they believe that Jesus was a prophet of Allah. If you look at the Mormons, they believe that Jesus was a creation of the Father who over time in heaven was promoted to deity and that today he is the son of God, but he is one of potentially thousands of sons of God. If you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in Jesus as well, but they believe that while Jesus is supernatural, he is not divine, that Jesus was a creation of the Father. And so religious people disagree on who is Jesus. But even I think sometimes people in the church, people who would consider themselves in the Christian camp, they disagree on the identity and the purpose of Christ. For for some people in the church, Jesus is uh, like a lucky charm. And a connection with Jesus uh, they, they feel like will help them do better on the test, uh, will help them somehow achieve their goals in their career, that, that somehow a connection with Jesus will help surgery go better, that, that will help the doctor's visit go better. And, and, and so, so Jesus is sort of like a vitamin. We don't really understand how it works, but we take them in. In this vague hope that sometimes we'll be, somehow we'll be better off for it. Uh, for some people in the church, uh, Jesus is just fire insurance. Uh, we're scared of dying. And, and our hope is that somehow Jesus will make that process end differently. And, and so for us, Jesus is just fire insurance. For some people, Jesus is a lawgiver. He is the one who determines what is right and wrong so that we can live according to what is right, or we can at least judge people that we think are living contrary to that. See, Jesus, there's great confusion about Jesus, who he is, his nature, and his character. And this confusion isn't new. For 2,000 years, people have been confused about Jesus. But I want to tell you, we've got a valuable treasure And you may not even know that we have it. Uh, We have a very valuable treasure. It's found in the Bible. It's found in the book of Philippians. We have this extremely valuable treasure that can communicate to us exactly who Jesus really is. You see, the first century Christians, the very first Christians lived in an oral society. Do you know what that means? they uh, they would pass information along if it was important information that they wanted to safeguard that they wanted to make sure it didn't get corrupted over the generations they wanted to pass something down to their children they would not put it on the internet okay because they didn't have uh, blogs and they didn't have wikipedia Uh, they couldn't go to the bookstore and buy a book they had books but not in the same way we have books today and so what they would do is they would write it into a song and they would they would create this song and they would describe whatever truth they wanted to pass on and once it was a part of a song sort of a catchy tune if you will and that that they could sing to their loved ones that they could teach to their children then the truth was safeguarded then that they knew it wouldn't get changed then it could be passed down from generation to generation now what some of the very earliest Christians did and this is amazing Some of the very earliest Christians, people who knew Jesus face to face, people likely who had seen the resurrected Christ, they decided to put to a song what they knew to be true about Jesus. And so they wrote this song, and and perhaps this song is even earlier than the Gospels. Perhaps this song is even earlier than when the Apostle Paul became a Christian. And they wrote this song, and this is what they used to, to communicate who Jesus was to the next generation. This is the song that they used in order to safeguard the truth. You know, over years, things can get exaggerated or forgotten or confused, but this is the song that they used so that these people who knew Jesus best could say, here's who Jesus is. Now, here's what's amazing. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing the book of Philippians, this letter to his friends at the church at Philippi, he decided to use at least a part of the song as an illustration and he put it right in the middle of the book of Philippians. It's just six verses long, it's just four sentences long in, in the CSB Bible. It, it's, it's we, we don't know if it's the whole song or if it's just the chorus or it's just one verse of the song, but here's the song that these very early Christians put together to communicate and to safeguard exactly who Jesus is so what I want us to do over the next little while is I just want us to marvel at Jesus I want us to look at the song I want us to see the things that these earliest Christians wanted us to know about Jesus and I want us just to stand amazed at who Jesus is now, ordinarily, when we come together, my, my chief goal, uh, aside from just honoring God and his word, my chief goal is to teach God's word so that you see how it intersects with your life. How it can impact who you are and how you should live. And I always try to end the sermon by saying, here's what God says you ought to go and do to bring honor and glory to him. And we're going to do some of that today, but today's going to be different than most sermons because the, the focus of today is not what you need to go and do. The focus today is just that Jesus is incredible. And I want us to go through this song and I want us just to be reminded of these things, what the early church thought, what the very first Christians thought, were the most important things we should know about Jesus Christ. So if you look with me, Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 6. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. You see his name in verse 5. And then verse 6 begins by saying, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this tells us who Jesus is. And and it does so, I think, by answering three important questions. First of all, it's going to say, who is Christ? It's going to tell us just in very plain terms who is Christ. Then it's going to tell us what Christ has done. And then finally, it's going to tell us what God has done as as a result of that, so so let's just work our way through this. First of all, who is Christ? Well, if you look back at verse six, and and please keep your Bible open this morning because we're really gonna uh, walk through these verses uh, closely. But verse six tells us that Jesus is God. He is God, and we see this because it tells us three things about Him. First of all, that Jesus always existed, and so look at the verse. You can see it on the screen who existing in the form of God. He existed in the form of God. Now you see in the Bible version that I'm using, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, existing has an ing on the end of it. In your Bible it may have an ed on the end of it, a past tense. Well, there's no confusion here. None of your Bibles are wrong. It's just that in the original language, the tense of this verb pointed past, pointed present, and pointed future. What it tells us is that he has always existed in the form of God. He exists today in the form of God, and he always in the future will exist in the form of God. Jesus had no beginning. Jesus has always existed. And that's important. Uh, the Bible alludes to this um, over and over and over. Uh, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus said, Before Abraham was I am. That seems like bad grammar, doesn't it? Before Abraham was, I am. But it's a Hebrew expression that that, that simply meant uh, Abraham lived a long time ago. But even before Abraham, I have always lived. Jesus says, "I had no beginning. I have always existed." In John seventeen five, Jesus asks the Father. To restore to him the glory that was his before anything was created. Jesus said, God, you remember back before anything was created, before anything at all was created. Earth, universe, people, angels, before anything was created. He says, remember then, restore to me the glory that I had even then. Colossians 1 17 says he is before all things. It speaks of Jesus. He is before all Things, but this is nailed down. The fact that Jesus has always existed is nailed down in John 1 1 Do you know that verse in the beginning was the word and the word word means Jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God what it says is if you went all the way back to the beginning I mean, to the very beginning, you went back in time as far as you could go before anything had happened, before anything was created, before anything happened. If you went all the way to the beginning, you would find that Jesus was already there. Now, I wanna show you how important this is. Uh, Some of you may know, many of you may know, but some of you may not, that uh, we have uh, one of the leading Bible scholars in the world, as a member of our church, I see him sitting right there in the back, and uh, uh, he is uh, he, he is renowned for his uh, his uh, scholarship and his uh, understanding of the Bible. And so, pull me aside and ask me sometime if it's intimidating to preach to one of the leading <laughs> Bible scholars in the world every week. Uh, but I was uh, I was reading uh, Dr. James Leo Garrett's uh, theology book this week, and uh, just to give you an idea of how. Um, how large this, uh, this set is that he wrote on Systematic Theology. I was reading volume one, page 693 and he wrote something about Philippians chapter two, verse six. And it's something I had not read I- anywhere else and I thought this is worth pointing out. He points out the fact that if you look at any major heresy, you know what a heresy is? A heresy is when people get uh, the Bible really wrong. I mean, they are really off track. If you look at any major heresy, back through history, you will discover that it started with them missing this important truth that Jesus has always existed. And then he goes on to write about Arianism which you're probably not familiar with. It was a fourth century heresy that really shook the church in the fourth century. But what he says of Arianism is true of the same heresies that we would point to today. I mean, Islam gets a lot of things wrong, but it starts with the fact that they get this wrong, that Jesus has always existed. See, the Mormons get a lot of things wrong, but but their heresy starts with this that they miss that Jesus Christ has always existed. The Jehovah's Witnesses get a lot of things wrong, but it starts with this, that Jesus Christ has always existed. This is so, so important. We must get this right. Jesus Christ, though he is God's son, was not created by the Father. He was not created by the Father. He is not a part of creation. He is the source of creation, the Bible says. He did not come into existence at the incarnation. I mean, Christmas was not the beginning of Jesus. He was not promoted from the ranks of men or angels. He has no beginning, no point of origin. He is the eternal God in every direction. Jesus has always existed. That's the first thing we see about him. In verse 6. Now, the second thing we're going to see that reminds us that He truly is God is that He has the characteristics of God. And so, if you look back at verse 6, it says, Who existing in the form of God? Now, the Apostle Paul could have chosen a couple of different words uh, when he wrote of the form of God. He could have chosen one Greek word, morphe, which refers to that unchanging uh, inner reality, that substance of a thing that just is never altered, the form of something. Or he could have chosen not morphe, but schema, which is a word that refers to the outward appearance that can change from time to time and circumstance to circumstance. Uh, Perhaps an easy way to understand it is for me to confess to you that one of my joys in life is that I like to look back at some of the pictures of my children you know through the years and I know that's a sign of old age okay but, but but I love doing it. I love to look back and see how my oldest daughter how she looked when she was three and five and ten and she's 18 now and, and, and you know what her schema her outward appearance has changed greatly through the years She, in that sense, is nothing like a three-year-old. She has has grown and matured and changed. But the morphe about her, that that inner part of her, she's still Hannah. And I can look at a three-year-old picture of her, and I can look into her eyes, and I see my Hannah in that picture. And I can look at an 18-year-old picture of her, and I can see in those eyes, it's still my Hannah. Hannah. That's the morphe, that's the part that doesn't change. And so Paul uses that word here when he says Jesus existed in the form of God, that the unchangeable character of Jesus is that he is God. He has all the exact characteristics of God. We talk about the fact that God is all-powerful. Well, Jesus is all-powerful. We talk about the fact that God the Father is all-knowing what Jesus is all knowing. We talk about the fact that God is faithful. What Jesus is faithful. We talk about the fact that God is good and just and loving. What Jesus is good and just and loving. Jesus is in the unchangeable form, the very essence of Jesus. He says he is God. We see this as well in Colossians one I know it giving you a lot of verses today, but this is uh, I want you to see that this isn't just something that's in this song, this hymn that these early Christians wrote, but this is something that starts there and then is echoed throughout the scripture. And so in Colossians 1:15 it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus has the characteristics of God. Now, the third thing we see, we're still right here in verse six, is that he is equal with God, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God, if you see in verse six, as something to be exploited. Equal here means that two things are the exact same size, quantity, quality, character, and number. They are exactly the same. Not one superior than the other, but they are the same. And again, we see this in, in Scripture, Colossians 1:19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus." And then Hebrews 1:3, "The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature. In every way, Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus is equal in the Father's riches. I mean, the father is rich, right? Jesus is rich. The father is powerful. Jesus is equally powerful. The the father is to be honored. Jesus is to be equally honored. The father has freedom. Jesus has freedom. We need to be careful that we don't think of Jesus as a junior version of the father. Like there's God, the father, and then there's Jesus, the son, and somehow he's Inferior. That's that's not what the Bible teaches. We we shouldn't think of Jesus as a limited version of the Father. We shouldn't think of Jesus as just an emissary of the Father. And listen, church, this is this is important. May seem like just some fine points of theology, but this is critical. Uh, Jesus presented himself as equal to God. In in fact uh, when they criticized Jesus in John 5 18, I'll just read this to you I don't think it's on the screen. Here's what they accused him of. They said not only was he breaking the Sabbath But he was even calling God his own father and he was making himself equal to God So Jesus claimed to be equal to God now is this important? Well John in first John 2 said that if you deny that Jesus is God that you can have no part in him. You are not a child of God if you get this wrong and you deny that Jesus is God. And then in 2 John, John writes that if you deny that Jesus became flesh and that he also became a man, if you get that wrong, then you are not a child of God. Now you can get some things wrong and it'll work out. But the Bible says if you get this wrong, You cannot be a child of God. Jesus is God. He he has always existed. He has the same characteristics as God and he is equal to God the Father. Now that's who Christ is. If we continue reading now the second half of verse six and, and on down a little bit, we're gonna see what Christ did. And here's where we can really marvel at Jesus. So pay special attention to this. Let me share three or four things. What did Christ do? Number one, he relinquished his rightful place. Now look back at verse six. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Jesus saw his status as God. Jesus is equal with God, but he didn't see that, the Bible says, as an opportunity for it to be exploited. What that means is he didn't see his status as God as an opportunity to benefit himself. He saw, listen to this, his status as God as an opportunity to bless other people. I want you to see how extraordinary this is. I want you to see how unlike us this is. Jesus had all the power and all the riches and all the freedom and all of the, all of the prerogative. Jesus could have done whatever Jesus chose to do. And Jesus saw that wealth and power and prerogative and he said, here's what I want to do. I want to take that and not be a blessing to me, but to be a blessing to the people who will live on the earth. Jesus saw his wealth and his power as an opportunity to bless other people. Now, are you like that? I'm not like that. Let, let, let me show you how we know we're not like that. If, if somehow you went to the mailbox tomorrow and you opened a, a, a formal official looking letter and it said that uh, some long lost relative that you didn't even know you had had passed away and they had left a million dollars in your name. And it was a check, cashier's check, for a million dollars. Now, in the first few minutes, what would go through your mind? Now, if you're like me, let's be honest. I mean, the first thing that go through your mind is who's, who's pulling a trick on me? But I mean, once you, were, you call the bank and they say, oh, it's legit. You, like me, would be thinking of how you could use that money to bless yourself. Now, don't be pretend spiritual. Don't be fake with me. I know you'd give something to somebody else down the road, but the first thing you'd think about is you. Now, let me give you a more down-to-earth illustration, because you're not likely to get a million dollars. But what if, what if one day in the next couple of weeks you get a completely unexpected Day off. I, I mean maybe you're working and they give you a day off or maybe you're not working outside the home Maybe you're retired or you're, you're you're at home with the children, but but something happens and you had all this stuff to do I mean everybody's busy, but but just a strange quirk of things you ended up with an unexpected day with nothing to do no Expectations nobody asking for anything nothing to do. What would you do with an absolutely free day. I mean, you're thinking of some things, right? And you thought first of how you could use that day for whose benefit? For yours, for your benefit. What if somehow we made you king for the day or queen for the day, what would you do? You'd benefit you. But but see, what this verse tells us is that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider his status as God as an opportunity to bless himself, but he saw it as an opportunity to bless others. It wasn't grounds for getting. It was grounds for giving. He relinquished his rightful place. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is marvelous. Now, let me show you the second thing that we see here that he did. He emptied himself. Now, we get to verse 7. Verse 7 said, instead instead of blessing himself, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Now, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. Jesus was still God. When Jesus was walking on the earth, he was still God. And I know that raises some questions that we don't have good answers for, but Jesus has always been fully god But Jesus did set aside some things. And and he did this because he loves us. Listen, some of the things that he set aside. He set aside his heavenly glory. Jesus had a face-to-face relationship with God. And and, and that's, we we don't even understand how wonderful that is. But Jesus gave that up. And, And it was so precious to Jesus that he longed for it in his ministry. And he would go and spend all night praying to the Father because he longed to have this closeness again with the Father. But he gave that up. He emptied himself of that. He emptied himself of his independent authority. Uh, Jesus uh, submitted to the will of the Father, the Bible says, when he was uh, a man on earth. Uh, He gave up his divine prerogatives. Uh, Jesus didn't exercise his power. Jesus got hungry and tired. Jesus felt pain. Jesus uh, felt rejection. He gave up all of his, or many of his, divine prerogatives. Jesus gave up his eternal riches. To go from the one who not only owned, but the one who had created everything to living as a baby in a manger. He gave up his eternal riches. He gave up his favorable relationship with God. So when Jesus is on the cross, the father rejects the son, abandons the son, forsakes the son. How terrible that was. And that wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus emptied himself of those things. I read a story this week about... An African chief. Uh, he was uh, the head of his uh, tribe in, in some remote place in Africa. And uh, he was the chief because he was the strongest man in the tribe. He just rippled with muscles. And, and, and so one day in this, uh, in this tribe, there was uh, another man who fell down a deep well shaft. He fell down this hole and he hit his head. He was unconscious, but he was still alive. And they were trying to get him out of the well and 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 they couldn't. They they could send men down into the well, but it was pretty narrow. And and, and to get him out, the, the men had to hold him with one arm and they had to climb out with the other arm. And none of the men were strong enough to do that. And so they called the African chief, the 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 tribal chief, and they and they told him, and so he came to the well. And he was standing there and he had on his royal robe, uh, the robe of his, uh, of his high office. He had on this uh, big headdress that, uh, uh, that, that he wore and he had uh, a staff with jewels on top. And, and so he shows up and, and, they, and they explained to him what had happened and that the, the man's only hope is that the chief could somehow go and retrieve him. And so the chief took off his royal robe, he set aside his headdress and he laid down his staff and he climbed into the well and he took hold of this man and using his unusual strength, he lifted him out of the well and he saved the man's life. Now, when the chief was in the well, without his headdress and his robe and his staff, He was still the chief, right? He was still the, he had set aside the trappings of his office, but he was still the chief. And when Jesus came to the earth, he set aside much of his, uh, much of what it meant to be God. But he was still God. He had set it aside so he could come to save us, to rescue us from sin, but he was still the one true the living God. And so he emptied himself. Now, the next thing we see that he did is he condescended. He condescended. Now that's a, we're using that as a theological word, but I want to show you what it means. Look back at verse seven says, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came, he came as a man. Now, we know because the Christmas story, we know that Jesus became flesh and we think about the cute little baby in the manger and all the, uh, the, 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 the shepherds and, and, and the scene, okay? We, we, we see that, but we have made it into this uh, nice, almost romantic kind of thing that God loves us by sending this sweet little baby. But, but, but I want you to see the truth. I want you to see this for, from, from God's perspective, from Christ's perspective. Jesus was God he is God and, and Jesus as God humbled himself he condescended to us To, to, to become a man and, and, and that's a big deal You know one of the things I've been reacquainted with since I've moved to Texas is That we have fire ants in Texas. Did you know that? Do you call them fire ants or red ants? Uh, we, we don't have any of those in Ohio, okay, but uh, you have some here and, and so we I don't, I don't know It's a couple of months ago. Somebody came over to my house late at night I was in the mission house at the time and and so I went out to talk to them and I, 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 I Was barefooted and so I went out and I was standing on the sidewalk in front of the mission house And I guess I was standing close to a to an ant bed and and, and nothing. You know, we were just talking and then all of a sudden, about five ants, they, they choreographed this somehow, about five ants all bit me at the same time. And uh, you, you know what that feels like. It catches your attention, right? Ooh, what's going on? And I quickly dispatched those five ants to ant heaven or ant hell. I don't know which direction they go, but uh, listen, I, 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 don't, I don't like fire ants. Don't, uh, don't tell Charles Poole this, my... Uh, real estate agent, but when I was uh, trying to buy a house recently, I snuck over in the middle of the night, (laughs) and I uh, took ant poison, and I treated all of the yard. There were all these ant beds. I thought, well, it's not my house yet, but I'm either going to bless the bank or I'm going to bless myself, but I'm going to kill every ant on this piece of property. (laughs) But, you know, honestly, I don't have anything against ants. I mean, I'm, it's not like this vendetta, you know, my dad and their dad, you know, it goes way back. I mean, there's nothing like that. Um, I mean, if we could just have a truce, I mean, if we could have a treaty, if they'll leave me alone, I'll leave them alone. I'm not out to get the ants. I mean, I know I killed 100,000 of them a couple of weeks ago, but I, I am not out to get them. I, if, if they'll leave me alone, I, I promise I'll, I'll leave them alone. But how could I possibly communicate that to the ants? How could I let them know that you know, that there's not this uh, grudge match? I mean, we could just work something out. Well, I can stand over the ant meds and yell, uh, but I don't think that would be very effective. Uh, I, I think the only way, and I don't frankly think this would even be very successful, but the only way I know of to, to have some treaty to have some better relationship between me and the ants would be for me to become an ant Like I said, I don't even think that would be very successful I don't think I could talk millions of ants out of my yard and into the neighbor's yard, but uh, But I might be able to rescue a few I mean I might be able to find a few ants if I were an ant and I could convince them Maybe just a few I could convince them to get out before the ant poison arrives <laughs> You know I could save maybe a few, but let me be honest with you. If some scientist came along and 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 he said we found a way, Noel, I can make you an ant. I can turn you into an ant. I I wouldn't do it. it. It's not worth it. I I like being a person. I like having the freedom of walking around and driving a car and, and, and knowing people and eating a variety of foods. And uh, you know I don't want to be it. I mean, I mean, if somebody really, I mean, in all seriousness, if somebody said, Pastor, we figured out a way for you to be an ant, I would not do it. And you wouldn't either. I mean, life is too good. I don't want to be an ant. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. And, and, and you know, we, I think about the difference between me and an ant. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty big. I mean, I'm a person. The, the ant, you know, and my, my life and in an ant's life, you know, so, so limited. The difference between God and us is even greater. But Jesus said, I, I, "I don't even know that I'll be successful at saving many of them, but if I could just save a few, I'd become a person." See, he condescended. You see how amazing that is? He condescended to become a person like you giving up your life to become an ant, to save a few stinking ants in your backyard. He condescended to become a person to save a few people on this planet. That is amazing. And then I want you to see one more thing about what he did. He humbled himself. You see this in verse eight says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross this speaks of this crucifixion crucifixion is not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners there were easier ways to execute prisoners there were cheaper less messy ways to execute prisoners no crucifixion was meant not just to kill somebody but to destroy somebody's person i mean it wasn't just that it it stopped their life it It robbed them of um, of their dignity it it just it destroyed them as a person and that's what it was designed to do Uh, if the Romans uh, sentenced you to crucifixion that was the government saying that you were not even worthy of a dignified death Uh, the pain of crucifixion is magnified by the degradation and the humiliation for them to strip you bare stretch you across a board, hang you in front of a crowd, let people watch you suffer and die. No other form of execution, no matter its torture or its pain, could be as destructive as crucifixion for the actual person, the dignity of life. But Jesus' crucifixion his voluntary crucifixion was the ultimate counterpoint to his divine majesty now again the crucifixion was not a surprise to Jesus it was part of the plan and so Jesus the the, the the magnificent majestic all-powerful Jesus submits himself to this worse form of execution and it was the ultimate expression of obedience to the Father and love for us he humbled himself Isn't Jesus amazing? Well, I want you to see one more thing, how Christ was uh, exalted. If you look at verse 10, we see that he was exalted by God. It says that the name of Jesus, I'm sorry, verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So, um, so he was exalted by God. God gave him his highest honor. That's, uh, th- th- that's something. You, you, you do something that's, um, uh, you, you do your best at something and, 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 and you'll, somebody who is uh, uh, of some lower status than you compliments you, that means a little bit. But if someone who is world class at whatever you've done compliments you, that means a whole lot. And Jesus was exalted by the father but notice it says that he gave him a name Which is above every name. What does that mean? What name? How can a name be above another name you take the name Amy and you take the name Cindy Which name is above the other? I guess Amy comes first in the alphabet, but Cindy's a bigger name. I mean, I don't, it doesn't even make sense that one name would be an above another name. So what does he mean when it says that God gave Jesus the name which is above every name? Here the word name means title or position or rank. God said, the Father said, Jesus, you are the highest ranking. I acknowledge that that, that there is no one superior, nothing greater than you. He was exalted by God. But it says in verses 10 and 11 that he'll be exalted by everybody. Look at that again. So that the name of Jesus, every, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Think about that. It says everybody will confess that Jesus is Lord. Does that mean everybody will be saved? Have you ever wondered that? Does that mean at the end everybody will confess and so everybody is saved? We had people this morning confess that Jesus was Lord as they were baptized. And and, and the Bible says if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God will save us, adopted us into his family. So, so, So does this mean that everybody will be saved? No. You see, today... We have an opportunity to confess Christ as Lord because we love him, because we are thankful, grateful for his grace and mercy. But there will come a time when you won't have that choice. There will come a time when God will reveal Jesus in all of his holiness, in all of his power, in his majesty, and you will have no choice. It will be so awesome. I mean, in the real sense of the word awesome, it'll be so overwhelming. Every, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. It'll just be, it'll be so brilliant, so amazing that, that, that we won't, we won't necessarily bow because we love him, but we will acquiesce to his great power. And that's a great thing, but it reminds us that it's only today that we can respond to Jesus out of love, and it's only the expression of love that leads someone to becoming a part of the family of God. You know, let me explain it this way: If I now, you, you've been sitting for a long time, and uh, most of you, just a couple of exceptions, most of you have been very respectful, you know, you've sort of faced forward, you haven't carried on a conversation, and, and I guess that's out of respect for the church and the position of pastor and the Word of God that we're teaching, because it was voluntary. You could respect or not respect. You could have done something else or, 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 or you know, played Jen Rummy back there, I guess I mean you, it, it was your choice. I mean you have you have demonstrated respect by choice And so I can properly Evaluate that and say you respect one of those things either the church or the office of pastor or or the preached Word of God But now let, let's say if we did it this way if I, if I would have come in here at the beginning of the message with a machine gun, okay now I mean, don't take this too seriously. I don't want anybody to write a letter, but I, I come in with a machine gun, and I say, now listen, you got to pay attention to everything I have. I don't want anybody moving around. I don't want anybody talking. I don't want anybody playing solitaire. And if I see you, I'm going to shoot you right here. And just to convince you that I'm telling the truth, I pick about three of you, and I just go ahead and shoot you right now, Okay? And then I'm standing here I'm keep my eye on the choir <laughs> and I start preaching with this machine gun now now you're gonna sit still and pay attention you are but do I know that you're paying attention because you respect the office of pastor the church and the Word of God no because there's a pretty good chance the reason you're paying attention is because you don't want to be next right I mean, you've just evaluated the situation and thought, well, for the next hour, it'd just be smart for me to keep my mouth shut and keep my phone in my pocket. Because when the power goes up, you know, the more power I show, the less choice you have. One day God will, will show us all of his power. You wonder, why doesn't God just reveal Jesus like that now? So that everybody will respond to Jesus. Well, because that response will not be voluntary. Because Jesus will show us his power. We won't have any choice. So, so there's something about Jesus' majesty and beauty and holiness that's shrouded today. So that you and I can choose to love and follow Jesus. One day the shroud will be removed. And we will just acquiesce. Now that tells us, that tells us that we have a chance. We have an opportunity. If you have never with your whole life confessed that Jesus is Lord, listen, now's the time. Now, while, you, while it can still be a choice, now's the time. Choose Jesus Christ. To recognize that you're guilty of sin and there's no hope apart from what Jesus has done. But you believe Jesus died on the cross Pay the penalty for your sins. And so you trust in that and surrender to him. And make him the Lord of your life. So we, we don't do this very often. I don't know if we've done this since I've been here. But I, I'm, I'm not finished with the message, even though I'm out of time. But let, let, me, let me ask you to bow your head for a moment. And, and I just, because I don't want any distractions. Do you right now today need to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ I invite you to do that right now, just with nobody moving around, everybody very quiet. Would you just respond to Jesus right now? Now, Father in heaven, uh, as people have, uh, have responded, perhaps today, I am thankful that Jesus is faithful to save everyone who reaches out. And I pray that you change lives, that you change hearts, and that you would be glorified in who we are. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Let that draw us to him such that our lives are changed forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul did use this, uh, this to illustrate a point. And, um, I'll let you find that yourself. So you read Philippians 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. And you try this week to find the point that Paul was making as, uh, as he used this uh, incredible song, this hymn, that tells us about the nature of Christ. But I want us to stand now, and I'm going to ask uh, Andre to come. If you need to come forward and make a decision or to pray or counsel with somebody, we'll be standing right here. We invite you to come. So let's sing and, and just worship Jesus